It is nice to be back with all of you. I really do mean that. Every time I miss a Thursday night, even though I know you're in great hands with someone like Pastor Steve, and I know you had a wonderful time with him, I personally miss you all. And I'm so thankful to be called to uh, be your pastor, and I'm thankful to be here tonight. So I'm thanking you in advance for the way you're already eager to hear God's word and um, and let God's word be a mirror in your life. So you are very precious to me, and thank you for being here, and thank you for opening up God's word. Before we uh, begin, let's just remind ourselves, it's been a while since we've been in James, maybe we're a little rusty, and forget uh, kind of where we've been with James. We've kind of just moved into a new part of James, but let's try to remember it all. So, <coughs> excuse me if I have to cough randomly, but let's... Uh, Let's go review kind of where we've come from so far in James. It starts out with the first question of James. uh, Why should I rejoice in trial? Because trials... Now see this part where you just awkwardly wait for me to continue. You just trials. Sometimes those trials last a lot longer than you want them to. Sometimes you're ready to move on to the lesson. But trials... Trials, just feel those trials just grating at you. Trials strengthen your faith. But only if you pray to God for wisdom. What does wisdom do? Wisdom helps you think eternally. Wisdom uh, looks forward to the crown. Uh, Wisdom knows that temptation comes from within. Wisdom trusts, which Noah Brummett just told me today actually means love, but that's okay, trusts everything that comes from God. That's why you should rejoice in trials. But how, next question, next section of James, uh, how do I know that my faith is true? How do I know that my faith is true? Well, let everyone be quick to hear. Remember this? Slow to speak and slow to anger. Love you, Andrew. Slow to anger. God's word is my mirror. And then I screwed you all up trying to teach you something that nobody made sense. So let's just remember, so that we can do it. Let's just say that, okay? So that we can do it. God's word is my mirror so that we can, I can do it. There you go. God's, let's do that one more time. God's word is my mirror so that I may do, okay? And then our, our message for tonight. Amy, are you in control? Are you able to handle this? Okay, good. All right. Uh, our, our message for tonight is the last part, and this is really kind of the end of the introduction to the second part of James, and this kind of summarizes the entire next three chapters of James. And so just by remembering this, you'll kind of know the center part of James, and it is something like this. Let me make sure I remember that. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, true faith, true faith controls the mouth helps the weak, and turns away from the world. If you remember that, you remember the entire middle part of James, right? True faith controls the mouth. You think you're eating hamburger, but actually you're chomping down on your lips so they don't say anything. True faith controls the mouth, helps the weak. This is, you're helping yourself, I know, but but pretend like you're helping somebody who's weak. Helps the weak and turns away from the world. Okay, there you go. We're all kind of cut up kind of got up to speed. Um, once again, we've entered this part, this part of James, that's starting to examine what is true faith. How do I know that my faith is true? 
How do I know that my faith is the real deal? That's what James, the central part of James, is going to examine. And we've seen that true faith begins with how you respond to, receive, and hear God's word. Remember this uh, verse 19 of chapter 1 of James, right? Uh, This, beloved brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. True faith first hears God's word well. You've got to first hear God's word well if you want to have true faith. It, it, it hears God's word because God's word is like a mirror, and it shows you your faith. It helps you examine your faith and correct your faith where your faith is weak or shallow. It helps you turn away from sin because God's word is your mirror. True faith, though, must have God's word in front of it if it will even get close to true faith. Uh, True faith obeys God's word. You hear God's word, you obey God's word, but then I would also say true faith remains under God's word. You're looking at a mirror, you're not liking what you're seeing, and true faith abides in God's word. See that verse 25 right there? But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man is blessed in what he does. True faith starts with God's word. It, It... It sees itself through God's word, and it obeys God's word, and it remains under God's word even when it is difficult. I would would say now that that James, before we kind of get into this section, kind of gives us some examples or evidences of what true faith looks like. You want to know what true faith looks like? Here's three evidences, right? And and just to kind of go through these evidences, you kind of know what they are already if you remembered our our catchy little hand signals. Um, but to go through these, we're going we're gonna to approach these three evidences or examples of true faith in, in the form of diagnostic questions. So ask yourself these questions to examine your faith by the Word of God, okay? That is how we're going to approach it. These are the three questions. I'll give them to you straight up, and then we'll go through them one at a time. First question, what comes out of my mouth? A- examine your faith by examining what comes out of your mouth. Examine your faith, secondly, by asking, why do I do what I do? Why do I do what I do? And then thirdly, whose wisdom do I value? Whose wisdom do I value? We'll go through those again. Let's start out with the first question, the first diagnostic question to ask yourself and examine whether your faith is true. Ask this question, what comes out of my mouth? Ask yourself that question. What comes out of my mouth? I'm not talking here about what comes out of your mouth in the times that are easy. I'm not talking about what comes out of your mouth um, before people that you want to impress. I'm not talking about what comes out of your mouth during small group time even. I'm not talking about what comes out of your mouth when you're talking to people that you want to impress. I'm not talking about those times. I'm talking about the times when you don't care about the people you're talking to. I'm talking about the time when you're talking to people who don't really matter to you. I'm talking about the time when you're talking to people who are coming between you and what you really want in life. Those are the conversations I want you to examine. That is when your faith is truly known. Not when you want to impress other people, but when you don't care. When you are most free with your tongue, that is when you should examine your true faith. With your parents, maybe. With your siblings. With your enemies. If you have enemies, examine your mouth then. That is what will be a true test of your faith. Look at verse 26. 
It says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious while not bridling his tongue, but deceiving his own heart, this man's religious religion is worthless. You want to know what a worthless faith looks like? An empty religion. The word worthless sometimes refers to uh, idolatry and the, the emptiness of idolatrous religion. You want to know what a religion that is as as meaningful and powerful as bowing down to a, a statue made out of wood is. Look at what your mouth is doing. That will show you the true nature of your faith. But look at this. This is incredible. Verse 26 is a, a an astounding truth to chew on. The words, in your most unguarded moments, are the most reliable indicators of the spiritual state of your heart. That is what verse 26 is saying. Your words are the most reliable indicators of the spiritual state of your heart. You probably don't want to hear that. That's not the kind of message you want to hear. You want to hear a message, your heart wants to hear a message that, hey, what you say doesn't matter, but God's word says what you say in your most unguarded state. Jesus would say, even the most careless word is an indication of what is going on in your heart. Once again, remember, God's word is your mirror. It shows you you. It's not a very comfortable picture. We are seeing here that our words show us something about the spiritual state of our heart, and that is not pleasant. For example, by illustration, there are lots of ways to check the tire pressure in your car. There are lots of ways to see what the tire pressure state of your tires is. You're going on a big trip. You want to make sure you get good gas mileage. There's lots of ways to determine that. You could look at them. They look full. That's a way to determine, right? That's a way to determine the tire pressure of your car. If they're really flat, that'll help you, right? You could feel them. (laughs) That's a way to determine. You could smell them. That is a way to determine the tire pressure of your car. You could lick them. Wouldn't recommend it. But that is a way to determine the tire pressure of your car. You could even take a bite of them. That could also give you a sense of how much air is in these tires. But are those reliable ways? Are those helpful ways? Will those actually give you a reliable reading for the tire pressure in your tire? No, (laughs) no. They won't tell you anything. They'll just tell you (laughs) that you're an idiot. That's all they'll tell, and your neighbors that you're an idiot. That's all they will do. No, the most reliable way to check the tire pressure of your car is to use this thing called a tire pressure gauge. Stick it on that little hoochamajigger there on the tire, (laughs) and it will quickly tell you the state of your tires. And then, of course, if you're like me and you don't know anything about tire pressure, then you go inside the door. What is it supposed to be at when it's cold? Okay. Oh, that's a problem. I'm going to go over to the store and they're going to pump it for me, if you're like me. But that is the most reliable way to check the tire pressure. But, but notice this. You, there are lots of ways to determine what's going on in your heart. And a lot of those ways are not very reliable. You, you could have all sorts of schemes about what is going on in your heart. You could think good thoughts about yourself. That could be a way you could determine the spiritual state of your heart. But God's word is giving you here a reliable way. A reliable way. It is often very accurate. That's what I mean by reliable. It is often very 
uh, accurate. You will know how your heart is spiritually by what comes out of your mouth. How do you know whether your heart is unbridled, out of control? Well, your mouth will tell you so. The unbridled mouth, the mouth that has no control, has no reins, has no tight guard on it, is evidence, according to God's word, that your heart has no tight rein on it, no control. That is what God's word is saying there, verse 26, right? It, it, you can think all these religious thoughts about yourself. You can say, well, I, I, I do religious things. That's what that word is saying. All these religious outside activities. I, I go to church. I pray. I read my Bible. I'm a member of church. I've even been baptized. I, I attend small group every single week. I can do all of these things, but those aren't accurate uh, reliable measures of a spiritual heart. A accurate level measurement of your heart is actually in the words you use. Your, your heart manifests itself most frequently in your mouth. Worthless religion can't cover up its heart completely. You can do it for a while. You can do it for a long while, but eventually the worthless heart will make itself known in worthless speech. It is evident. Here's a quote from a commentary. The unbeliever cannot keep up a spiritual facade indefinitely, and the true believer cannot, contain, uh, cannot be content to remain in sin indefinitely. Two people, two different hearts, they can't either remain in sin for long, that is a true believer, or they cannot keep up the facade of religion for very long. That is what will evidently come out in your heart. Either you will confess your sin, seek to make things right, you'll be a true believer, or you will blow up eventually and your true spiritual nature will come out. But eventually your heart will make it known. Matthew twelve thirty six. you could write down this. The mouth speaks out of what fills the heart. Think about that. Jesus says this about what comes out of your mouth. It's not just a whoops. It's not just a mistake. It's not just a, I didn't mean that. No, according to Jesus, your mouth is being pushed open by pressure from your heart. It is a fountain pushing water upwards. And what comes out of your mouth is actually a reflection of your heart. Your mouth is the fruit that produces according to the kind of the tree. Your, your heart is the kind of the tree, and your mouth is just producing the fruit that is inside of your heart. Look at over in James 3, verse 9, talking about the tongue. Once again, he's just kind of setting up for later messages here, but um, uh, with it, verse 9, chapter 3, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a fountain pour forth from the same opening fresh water and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor salt water produce fresh, right? You will produce ultimately what is in your heart. And James 3 even says what comes out of your heart. What comes out of the mouth is lit on fire by hell. The heart steering away from God. That is what often comes out of the heart. And that comes through your words. The words of your mouth, especially when you are not guarding them, are your truest, most reliable sense of yourself. 
And that is a very scary thought. But that's where you know whether your religion is true, whether your faith is true. What comes out of my mouth when the pressure's on? What comes out of my mouth? True religion works, in other words, from the inside out. You don't change yourself from the outside in. You don't go home and say, man, I want to become more godly, so I'm going to work on some outside things. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to do all these things. That is phony religion. That is worthless religion. True religion that is truly saving religion, that is humbled under God's word, begins with a conviction of the sins of the heart. Before it is on my tongue, it is a thought in my head. Before it is an act of my hands, it is a desire of my will. That is how you see yourself spiritually. You first focus spiritually inside, and you will see the difference by the power of the Spirit, by the blood of Jesus Christ. Words, though, are most reliable, just to say it again, because why? Because they are the things that we produce the most of. That is why words are the most reliable indicator of your heart. MacArthur says this, the tongue is not the only indicator of, the spirit, of, of true spirituality, but is one of the most reliable. It has been estimated that the average person will speak um, some 1,800 words in a day. That is enough for a 54-page book. Every day you're writing a 54-page book. In a year, that amounts to 66 800-page volumes. That is more books than you want to read. <laughs> Every year you're producing that much speech. Up to one-fifth of the average person's life is spent talking. One-fifth. Listen to that. Yes. You want to know what your heart is looking like? Look at what your speech is doing, because that's what comes out of your mouth and your heart the most. What comes out of my mouth? That is the first diagnostic question. Second diagnostic question for us this evening. Why do I do the good things I do do? That's four do's. Why do I do the good things I do do? Eh, that might be too many do's. Who knows? But it was fun to say out loud. Uh, why do I do the good things that I do? Why do I do? Never mind, you got it. So anyway, uh, true faith, you can see this, helps the weak. True faith helps the weak. Why? Uh, verse uh, 57, let's look at this. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. A true faith is known by how you help the weak. Why do you help the weak? Well, number one, it's because of who your God is. God cares about those who are helpless and who are weak, who have no resources in themselves. God cares about those people. Orphans and widows in the, the first century world were probably the most helpless people because they didn't have like all of these societal structures for helping people. They didn't have social safety nets like we have today that sort of work. They had families. That was your social security system. If you didn't have a family, you were in trouble. It was your family that would help you. They would house you. They would help you get back on track. But if you didn't have any of those things, if you were a widow without a husband to provide for you, or if you were a child without parents, you were in the most dangerous position. In the most dangerous position. Women would have to resort to prostitution. Children would maybe, maybe survive. 
But God is the God who cares for these people that are most helpless. Psalm 68.5 says this, Our God is a father to the fatherless and a judge to the widow. This is who our God is. And if you think about it, that is exactly why God saves the kind of people that he saves. God doesn't save the kind of people that have everything going for them, that have figured it all out, that are totally in control, that don't need any help from anybody. No, God saves the people that first recognize their true spiritual need and they come to him helpless. That's because our God is one who saves for his own glory. That's that's why we help the weak because of who our God is. But number two, we also help the weak. True faith helps the weak because of who God's children are. Notice what it says here, right? Pure and undefiled religion before our God. This is our God. This isn't just some distant God, but this is our near and dear God who has cared for us. But notice also, it is our God and our Father. There is a family resemblance. That is why true faith is known by the way it helps the weak. Because you know that your God has rescued you when you were weak and you have a heart and a compassion for any forms of weakness that you see in your life. You want to help the weak as well. You are like your Father in heaven. And you want to help the weak. There is a spiritual family resemblance, you could say. But the number three reason why the true faith helps the weak, you could say, is because you seek to please only one audience. You seek to please your Father and your God in heaven. True faith is animated by this sense that my God sees all the needs of this world, and my God cares, and my God has even put me in a position to be an instrument of God's mercy and grace to others in my life. And my God is given glory through my efforts to help the weak, and I want to be a part of things that give him glory. Notice, notice, this is pure and undefiled religion, which is what? Before our God and Father. It's before God. It's not for other people as much as it is mainly for God's pleasure and God's glory and God's fame. God has loved me like this, and therefore I want to be an instrument that loves other people. But notice, you see a a contrast here right away between true faith and worthless faith, or you could say worthless religion. Worthless religion works to please others, works to please men, works to gain praise, works to gain favor from people through doing all these good things, right? I, I could make an argument here that what James is referring to when he's saying helping the orphan and helping the widow is not saying to the church, hey, set up some huge homeless shelter or maybe, hey, have this huge ministry for all of the widows in your neighborhood. It might be saying that, but I think what James is actually pointing to is a real situation that's happening in the church where Christians are ignoring other Christians in need because they are poor. And instead of helping the Christians that are in need in your circles, These Christians are giving preference to rich people that maybe are coming from outside the church or something like that, but they're giving preference to the rich because they think, if I give to the rich, the rich can give back to me. And it's totally a selfishness that 
dominates their religious expression. I am only going to serve those who can give something back to me. Look at James 2. We'll be here next week. James 2, verse 1. My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. If a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in bright clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the bright clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you, you stand over there or sit at my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Notice, rich man coming in, maybe it's a believer, maybe it's not. It seems to suggest, according to James, that the, the rich are the ones outside that are kind of causing the poor to suffer and causing believers to suffer. They are, they are abusing them. They are blaspheming the glorious name. They are dragging and oppressing them and dragging them into court, according to verse 6, right? It's the rich causing all the problems, and you, with this personal favoritism, are trying to get in good with the rich because you're hoping to get return for your good works. That's worthless religion, right? That's the kind of religion that our God and Father does not like at all. That's empty. That's motivated in a selfishness. But true religion, notice here, is motivated by a selflessness. It says, I see the only one who's watching me is God, and that is the only one that matters to me, and I'm going to serve to please him. But notice also, this is true faith. It's not doing all of these things to gain approval from God. It's doing these things because you know you've already been approved by God and brought into the family of God. And you can't get over the fact that God has been gracious and merciful to you. This is true faith, true religion. It labors selflessly for the weak and lonely in your circles. It even visits them. That's a word that refers to going and physically visiting people to try to help them. It visits people to try to help them because of the way that God has given you such grace. Why do I do the good things that I do? Because my God is watching me, and I serve for an audience of one. Let's ask the, the third and final diagnostic question. <coughs> what comes out of your mouth? Number one, why do you do what you do? Number two, number three, whose wisdom do you want? Whose wisdom do you value? Whose wisdom? Do you value God's wisdom, the word of God's wisdom, or do you value this, the world's wisdom, the worldly system of wisdom? Your, your good deeds not only show your love and affection for your God, they also show you what system of wisdom you serve under, what worldview you hold to. Notice verse, the, second, the, the half of verse 27. Uh, pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Notice there, your, your life, your faith is not stained or polluted or destroyed or ruined by the system and worldview that this world belongs to. The true hearer of God's word, the true one who obeys God's word and way, uh, does so because they actively resist the worldly way of thinking through actively pursuing God's way of thinking. That is how you resist the stain of the world. The world says, the world says, hey, words don't matter. 
What you say doesn't matter. It doesn't truly reflect who you are as a person. But God's word says, man, what I say does matter. It's a reflection of what I want. It's a reflection of what's on my heart. That's the world's way versus God's way of using, of viewing your tongue. The, wor- the world says you should only really help those people who can help you in return. I mean, let's just boil down, let's just boil down all social justice movements in our world today, and people like to help people to get something from them, whether it's praise or a position or to stay out of the mob's uh, bullseye, whatever it is, people want to help people for something in return. That is worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom that you must resist through actively pouring over God's word. But the, the point here is a worldliness wants to stain not just your life, not just the way you live, but worldliness especially wants to stain or destroy your faith or how you live out the Christian life. That is really what the devil wants to do when he wants to stain you with worldliness. He wants to stain your faith. Worldly faith, that is what that is what your adversary is after. Worldly faith says this. Worldly faith says that trials and troubles are always 100% wrong. 100% bad. When the Bible says, count it all joy when you face trials and trouble, worldly faith says, It's always bad to have trials and troubles. I will never count it all joy. This brings zero benefit to me, therefore I have zero joy in it. God can't be a good God and let something like this happen. Or or you can only boast in your earthly successes. You can't boast in your earthly humiliations. No, everything has to go 100% right, otherwise I can have no joy. That is worldly wisdom. Worldly faith also trusts whatever promises to remove the pain in your life. That is what worldly faith does. What will remove this problem? What spiritual aspirin can I take today to remove this headache from my life? I will take it. I will trust in it. God has no purposes for me in my pain. Therefore, what I must do, this is worldly faith, this is what worldly faith is saying, I must remove any pain or discomfort from my life regardless of what relationship I have to cut off, where I have to leave, or what I have to do. I have to remove pain from my life. That is worldly faith trying to resist pain. Worldly faith also is willing to blame anyone or anything outside of you for the troubles in your life. Remember, temptation comes from within. You need spiritual eyes informed by the word of God to see that. But worldly faith says temptation and trouble and problems are because of something else. It's someone that God has put in my life. Or it's just the way God made me. But it's not ultimately my fault. That is worldly faith. I refuse to acknowledge my guilt and my blame in any of my problems. Here's a thought, though. Here's a thought, though. Maybe God has sent you all of these troubles and trials into your life so that you can see how worldly your faith is, so that you can see who is really on the throne of your heart. Is it Jesus or is it yourself, your comforts, your love of control? What is really on the throne of your life that shows what wisdom you are following and pursuing in your life? But, but how can you actively, continually, Uh, keep yourself unstained from the world and the world's way of thinking. I would say to you, it is by keeping yourself under the revealing, convicting, 
transforming mirror of God's word. That is how you keep yourself from being stained by the world. You keep letting the word of God show you to you, showing you what true faith looks like, what true faith results in, and what worldly faith looks like, what worldly faith results in, showing you what kind of heart true faith has, showing you what kind of value systems worldly faith has, It'll do this. True faith must do this. It will continue to examine itself by the word of God even when it hurts. Even when it shows you in an unfavorable way. Even when it calls you to do something that you do not want to do. Even when it challenges popular opinion. Even when it requires you to be enduring and patient in your listening because listening to the word of God is hard. Even when it offends you. Even when it angers you. Even when it shows you like you really are. Worldly faith abides no, uh, true faith abides under God's word, but worldly faith runs. Runs in anger and argument from God's word every single time. Now you may wonder, this sounds a lot like a bunch of do's and don'ts. This doesn't sound like the Christian faith as well, at, at, at all. Why should I do this? Let me give you a promise, a promise rooted in the gospel that every believer holds to and clings to, Right? The more God's word shows you to you, the more God's word shows your sin to you, the more God's word even exposes the sinfulness of your heart, that is the degree, that is the extent to which the word of God is showing you the graciousness and the love and the kindness and the affection of Jesus Christ for you and for your sin, right? The more you see your sin, the more you have an opportunity to repent of your sin and trust in Christ Jesus alone. No other system of religion can do that. Every other system of religion is just try, keep trying, keep trying. But our faith is rooted in the fact that all our sin is put on Christ Jesus. And we follow him in love and in joy and in great grace. Matter of fact, We follow him out of a desire to follow him because of our great love for him. That is true faith. That is true faith on display through what we do. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of this time that we've been able to share together. Thank you for uh, the grace of this moment. Give us opportunities to truly examine our heart and see us and see ourselves correctly. Not so that we can just, you know, pat ourselves on the back and be impressed with ourselves, but that's so that we can see our sin and repent from it. Give us opportunities to show true love and kindness to those who are in need around us, to those who are lonely perhaps around us. Not so that we can pat ourselves on the back, but so that we can point all of the praise back to you and worship and declare your great grace to us. Give us even opportunities to see where we think more like the world than we should. And we treasure the truth of the world than we should. Not so that we can maybe ignore it or so that we can be so impressed with how biblical our minds are, but so that we can return all the thanks and all the praise to you. Help us to do that this evening through your word, through small group. Help us to do this continually for the rest of our life. We pray this in in Jesus' name. Amen.